I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Night Golf Podcast. I am Andy Johnson, and uh, we are we are here. Um, I was excited. I actually reached out to Roberto Castro uh, last week, and that was a a day or a couple days before the um, announcement and the Wired article that he was involved with the TGL. I thought Roberto would bring a really interesting um, perspective on everything going on in golf, and I also wanted. Uh, Wanted to hear him uh, and talk about his foray into the uh, persimmon retro golf club world that he's uh, jumped into in in the last couple months. So I was excited, Roberto. Then obviously being a part of the TGL, uh, a lot more stuff to talk about with that. Um, he was instrumental in the formatting of uh, the TGL, figuring out what format they'd play uh, when they kick things off the in in January. So this new enterprise, this new golf league, uh, that will be much more, uh, I think it'll be innovative. Uh, it's still golf, which I think anything that is uh, a golf league needs to, to be golf. So it will bring some innovation. I'm particularly excited about the golf design aspects and potential for golf design. I don't know how much they're going to get into that in year one. But uh, assuming there are multiple years of this venture, I think they could really do some neat stuff with the golf design uh, component of this uh, this startup. And I'm also really excited about the shot shot clock. So you know that's something I think we all want in professional golf. We want something that moves the pace of the game along a little bit faster. And maybe just maybe this could be something that that really gets that going. So without further ado, here's Roberto Castro on a myriad of subjects. Uh, and thank you for his time. Be sure to check out his podcast, the course record show. Um, he covers a lot of, uh, interesting topics from the business perspective in golf. So thanks again. And here's Roberto Castro. Roberto, welcome back on the pod. Um, you know, you've been in the news lately. I didn't I asked you to come on this podcast and then, you know, a day later you're you're in the news, you're involved with TGL. I didn't even know that was coming and you know, all of a sudden then we had to jump through some PR hoops to get you on. I'm a consultant now, Andy. You know, it's like it's a secretive world of uh, <laughs> you know, expense account dinners and not being able to say who your clients are. That's uh, that's exciting. I, 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 it changed the the lens of this conversation. We're probably going to talk a little bit more about TGL, but I, I wanted to talk about the most important thing development in your life in the last you know couple months. You, uh, you've got uh, you've got retro golf club fever. How's I'm, life playing some retro clubs? I've got the vintage set. A couple months in uh, the Persimmies. You were kind enough to send them to me. Uh, it's been super fun. I mean, honestly, it's been really like people light up when they see them, when they watch me hit them, they want to hit them. It's been a whole thing, man. And um, I've, I've really had fun with it. It's been really cool. 
What have been the big takeaways uh, for you? You know, former PGA Tour player, made it to Eastlake a few times, you know, uh, a very, very good career. What are the big takeaways from going from what is now modern equipment to the clubs that you probably hit a little bit as a kid? Exactly. I probably had persimmon like wood woods until I was like eight or 10 years old, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it was, I, I kind of was interested in it for a couple of reasons. One, the course I play at most of the time in Atlanta is a nine hole course. It's probably, you know, 3,300 yards. So if you play it twice and we do sometimes it's 65, 6,600 yard golf course, it's awesome right in the middle of midtown, but it's a sh- relatively short, uh, pure greens. You know, it's Atlanta. It's not really windy. It's hot in the summers. Like you can kind of go around and play kind of driver sand wedge, hit a bunch of greens, shoot kind of the same score every time. And then the other part, I play a decent amount of Monday charity golf and a decent amount of business golf. And I want to be social and play with like my, you know, play the same tees. And I'm not a long hitter at all. Like I was the shortest hitter on the tour, hence not on the tour anymore. Uh, but I was like, hey, maybe if I play the same tees with some older clubs, it'll be a little bit more social and I won't be hitting driver 65 yards from the green all the time. So that was that was the reason I I, I did the experiment. That is one of the amazing things about about the clubs. I, I had I was I played a hickory driver once at at National Golf Links and I played with three guys that were handicap levels of like eight to fifteen. Yeah. Um and we I, we played the same tees, and we were hitting from generally the same spot, and it was an amazing, um, you know, experience in the sense of it keeps you close together with people. Yep, yep, it definitely does. And the, I mean, I played so I've I've had them for about eight weeks, and I play like once a week, right? Um, and a couple things: one, you have to hit them pure, and you have to swing at them correctly. So I've got a persimmon woods, and then. I have a set of 19, I think they're 1982, 1983 tour model Titleist blades. And I fit up the lies and lofts. I like put modern grips on them. They have good shafts and they're like, they're super pure. They, those are, those are formerly Labron Harris, USAM winners clubs. Really? Yeah. That's well, I don't that's think they've they're... been hit since he won the USAM because they're in perfect <laughs> condition. I don't think he ever hit them. My friend got them. He just dropped off a couple bags of big tour bags full of old clubs. And, and my friend sent them to me and that's how they got to you by way that's of awesome. I was just an intermediary and, and you know, in, the, in yeah. the deal. No, much appreciated. They're sweet. Um, but I, so the, the results are and like warm weather, right? Cause it just recently kind of got cool down here, but good warm weather, I carry my driver 270, 275, my Callaway, and I carry the Woody 240 if I pure it. So, and then the irons are almost a club weak, and then they just not, they're super pure. Like, I think I play with them, like my results are about as good, but I hit a seven iron, instead of hitting a seven iron 170, it goes 155. So you're looking at the game being like a completely different proportion, like the a 400 yard hole is now a driver and a seven or an eight iron, as opposed to a driver and a 52 degree wedge. Right. And so it's just, it's a totally different deal. I think the big thing from my, you know, year and a half doing it was the carry distance of the driver. Yeah. All of a sudden, like 240, you're pumping it. And if it, if the course is firm and fast, 
like the ball is going to get out there. It, you can get it out there 280, especially with the modern ball kind of knuckles. It yeah. doesn't get up the way, you know, I think if you were playing an optimized ball, you might be able to get a little bit more carry out of it. But just bringing it back that much brings so much more hazards into the game. And then what I noticed is when you're just consistently hitting like two or three more clubs into the greens, it is just such a harder game. Yeah. It's totally different. And then par threes are the same. Like that 190 par three, like if it's warm out, I can like turn down a six iron or just hit a five. Like the 190 is a three iron with those, with that vintage set. And if you don't hit it right in the mouth, it's going 165, <laughs> you know? And the and the crazy thing is that I saw so I, I used them exclusively for like eight weeks. And then Saturday I went to hit a few balls and I got my gamers back out. And I have never had that good of numbers on my driver because I basically learned with the persimmon that if to swing up on it more and all 14 of the vintage clubs, if you don't hit them right in the middle. And honestly, I picked up like three, four yards with my irons. Like I had comfortable distance with my irons and I was swinging four up on a driver, 26, 2700 spin. And I have struggled for 20 years to get under 3000 spin. So the first time, and I wasn't even trying to, like I had just basically learned how to hit a driver properly by playing these old heavy clubs. And it was pretty wild. I mean, really wild. I, you know, I just, I got, I got, one of the reasons I got into this rabbit hole is some of my clubs broke, like my irons, the epoxy wore off. And anybody that knows me, it's like the worst thing. Everybody's like, oh, it take two seconds for somebody to fix it. It's like, well, it's not that. It's me getting to somewhere somebody will fix it. You know, so anyways, that's what that kind of threw me into this where I just started playing with the old irons. Then I went to the old woods. But anyways, I felt the same way is that I came out of it a way better golfer. A, I was missing a lot, a lot more greens. So I was chipping more. So I became just like way better around the greens. B, I actually think I picked up speed with a modern driver because I was playing a heavy persimmon driver for a year and a half. And like you said, you really have to hit up on the ball, especially with the modern ball, because the ball, that's the only way you're going to get it up into the air. Yeah. And it really made me realize how lazy I swing at my modern driver. Like I yes. kind of, unless I'm playing, and I rarely ever play like Shinnecock. It's like 7,400 yard parse, right? Like most of my golf, I'm just making lazy swings and it goes out there like 265 and it rolls and I hit a wedge into the green, right? If I'm playing an up tee, especially with the persimmon driver, you cannot make a lazy swing. Like you have got to rear, you've got to turn and you've got to try to smoke it. The only way to hit a, a really good shot is to try to smoke that persimmon driver. It's like the old videos of like Seve or Norman hitting drivers. Like, if Rom swung that hard at a driver today, he would hit it like 400 yards. You had to like crank on it. And then when I went back to the modern driver, I was still trying to crank on it and I was shipping it for me. Again, I'm short. So are, is this your announcement that you're coming back to PGA Tour Golf? Because you're you no, know, but I after wish eight I, weeks. <laughs> I wish I had. I would have never done this when I was playing because, you know, everything's got to be so finely tuned. But I really wish like on an off week, I would have played or practiced for three days with a vintage set. I do think it would have helped. I, you know, I think there is like a thing where you get in some driver ruts with modern driver and it's like, it's just really, it's really just bad habits. 
And when you put that, like there's something about when you look down at the persimmon or, uh, in that small head, it makes you refocus and and really think about making a good swing. And as you said, like, you know, you have to turn right. And, and that focus, I think like if you're in a driver rut, it sounds so, and it's just like anything in golf, right? It's counterintuitive is like, Hey, you know, if you're struggling with your driver, put this persimmon in for a day and a half, and then you're going to be better. You're going to take this harder to hit club is going to get you out of the rut because yep. it's, it's just like, you have to focus on hitting it. Well, like it's, yep. it's kind of crazy. It's like, it sounds so simple, but like the focus that requires it will make you a better player. Uh, do you have like a uh, a favorite memory of somebody like looking at it and wanting to hit it? Well, I played in our Georgia Tech fundraiser on Monday. And so I don't have a big sample size here, but I was at the range like four or six weeks ago and Vince Whaley, who plays on the PGA Tour now. And Vince is probably one of the 50 best drivers of the ball on the planet, like He's a phenomenal driver. It's a joke. And he picked up this persimmon and it was going shorter, but it was this, it was like this, it was absolute high lasers. It was really impressive. So then the Georgia Tech team at our fundraiser, they grab it and kind of the same thing happened. I mean, one of the guys that's kind of battling for the five, six spot, he pulled it out and the first two or three were like pretty ugly, right? Like really pretty rough. And then uh, this freshman that we've got from Louisiana who swings it like a tour player, he tees this driver up and I, he hit like a 280 yard laser on the first swing he made. So I think like really good drivers doesn't affect as much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's like the, the clip of Rory from the summer um, in Scotland when he hit that one and it carried, you know, I think it was, I think the carry was like 287 and it's like that's, the guys that's that are so far. The, I, this is like the whole point. And I think like the the thing and maybe who knows what happens. I feel like the entire professional games in flux. And one of the things that's right. also just lingering out there that would if it was any other year, be like storyline one a is like what's going on with the with the ball and, and the rollback. But somehow right now it's like storyline um, F, you know, maybe yeah. it's like completely out of the, the news cycle. Um, but, you know, one of my hopes long term is that they get you know, to some level of understanding that the game's going to be regulated and the driver head is is looked at. Because to me, just making that head smaller rewards skill. And that's really what what equipment should be doing at the highest level of the game. Yeah, yeah. But it's been fun. It's been. And then, of course, I went a little bit down the eBay. You know, I ordered another set of persimmon woods <laughs> that I thing. found. The irons will never be top. They're, they're absolutely... Perfect. Um, I when I went back to the modern driver a couple rounds, but kept the irons in. I hit What'd them a club buy? shorter, but I got a like a full set of Tony Pennis. Oh, nice. The driver's a little beat up, but the three, four, and five wood are money. That's I'm sure you could find somebody to refinish it, you know? Yeah, it just I just don't hit it like it does it's it's not good. Like All right. it, it just doesn't come off right. I think that one needs to be retired to the I mean, that's what the way the clubs are like. I, I couldn't imagine playing pro golf in the like 80s and 70s and and even early 90s, where it's like you're trying these clubs and like some just work, some don't compared to now where it's like right. this like science of like, this is your club, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and then you think about all the careers that kind of like made some bad equipment decisions and it's like, oh, he he lost like five years uh, 
because he played a terrible golf ball. Yeah, but that's something that doesn't really happen anymore. That happened yeah. during the first part of my career. Um, you had like the Stuart Applebee's and the guys that went that switched and then everyone makes such good stuff now. It doesn't happen to anyone anymore. It really like Xander Rom, they've all switched and they are still one and three in the world or whatever they are. I, I don't maybe it does, but I haven't seen it happen in the last like five to eight years, whereas it did used to happen. I was before I got my new clubs. I was using a 20. It was the Callaway Apex Pro. Remember the black head is like probably a 2015 driver. Yeah. And now I have the Paradigm. And yeah. I have to say, it's like astonishing how how good the driver is. I know. It's really good. <laughs> like, it's like hard to move the ball. Like, I struggle because like my cut doesn't move. Yeah. It's like it just goes straight. Like, the problem is it goes straight. And I still am used to setting up down the left edge of the fairway and cutting the ball. Yeah. You know, and it's just a weird, weird thing where it's just, I mean, it's not a weird thing. It's just, it's a, it's crazy how much better from 2015 to 2023 the drivers have gotten. Yeah. I mean, they're astonishing. The, the one thing I have not done with the vintage set yet is play a really hard golf course. Um, like my <laughs> other home course is like setting down. We have U.S. Open qualifying there every other year, 7,300 yards, like really long, hard golf course. I didn't get up there to play. I would play it from a tee up. I wouldn't play the vintage set from the back, but that golf course from like 69, 7,000 with the vintage set, I was really, I'm really excited to do it because like 70 would be like a damn good score, right? Like 71. And if I shot 75, like I could easily see myself like shooting 76 on a bad day, right? I think the thing too, I having done it is like I played some really great rounds, like really great rounds with them. But you just have to be so you have to be cooking. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it, it's like what I found was it's really easy to fall into that. I shot like 70 and this is just me. You're obviously a much better player than me. But it's like I shot 75 to 80. It was like where I felt, but like then I felt like I could still go pretty low. It's just hard to generate a ton of birdie chances if you don't have a ton of wedges, right? Totally. Yep. So, all right, let's move on. Enough uh, retro golf chatter. Um, <laughs> we could we could probably talk about, you know, maybe we should go play at, at a really tough course. I'll bring my retros back out, but let's talk about the TGL. I, uh, you yep. know, this would have been topic four, but you're involved. So, you know, <laughs> let's let's chat about it. Um, so it came out in the Wired article that you're involved with the TGL. Um, I'm curious how that came about. And uh, and and I would love to hear a little bit about the experience of being involved with the beginnings of a new golf format yeah it's been a really wild ride and uh i got involved because when i stopped playing i went to work for a consulting firm CapTech, and our core clients uh, we're on the technology side our core clients are like your fortune 500 types but we built out this sports practice really focused on like the data side um data platforms so we're working with pga of america nascar and we basically got a phone call. My boss got a phone call from a former colleague like 15 months ago. And it's like one of those memories. Like I remember dialing into the Zoom call and then five minutes into this presentation, like texting amongst my colleagues, like, what is this? And how has nobody heard of, like, how have we not heard about this? Because it's this just massive idea. Tiger and Rory are involved. 
and then it really, I mean, we just, we've been working on it ever since. So it's been a, a really fascinating project from top to bottom. All right, now for a quick word from our sponsor, Mizzen and Maine. Listen, uh, this has been a delight this year. Uh, Mizzen and Maine's come on, and one of the things that I love about it is uh, I've got lots of golf clothes, and one of the things I don't always do is go out and get some other clothes. So Mizzen and Maine sent a uh, a box out, and it's been awesome. Uh, I got a nice like flannel shirt. A, a really nice jacket and a nice vest that has me ready to go for the fall. So, you know, everyone loves the end of the year, but they love it even more when they're wearing a Miz and Main dress shirt. Uh, comfortable, breathable, packable, machine washable. These are the dress shirts that have been made the f- brand famous. They're designed to keep you really comfortable and uh, that you'll close out the year in style. So, you know, you can, this is a great gift. This is a, a great, uh, way to reward yourself at the end of the year is get a nice array of clothing. Mrs. Maine makes a ton of different styles from very casual to very dressy. So this, this stuff has been really delightful. It's super comfortable. It's uh, you f- kind of like forget you're wearing dress clothes when you're wearing it. Use the promo code FRIEDEGG to get 25% off if you, if you spend $130 or more at mizzenandmaine.com. That's M-I-Z-Z-E-N and A-N-D, Maine, M-A-I-N dot com. And use the promo code FRIEDEGG for 25% on $130 or more. Thank you so much to Mizzen and Maine uh, and uh, awesome clothes. Now back to Roberto Castro. Yeah, what I guess, uh, you know, as somebody who played golf, I imagine it it probably feels a little bit entrepreneurial, even though you guys are on the consulting side, you're not like, you know, you're not on the floor founder, but um, could you shed some light on maybe some of the learnings, some of the, you know, creating, and I know you've been super involved with the formatting of, of what, what you're going to do in terms of how the gameplay is going to happen. Can you, could you just shed, shed some light on how you guys have been ideating around this? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's really a couple different ways. We've, we kind of engaged with TGL in the, I'd call it discovery phase, right? So we were helping them like, Hey, where do you want to go? What are the requirements? What are you going to need to build on the technology side? So that kind of broke off and went down its own work stream, right? They don't let me code anything. So we've had big teams of engineers, like building out the core data platform, the data distribution, the tech that's going to power the league. And then my side, was really focused, like you said, on the gameplay. So um, Scott Armstrong is who is the VP of gameplay for TGL. He has a great golf background. His dad played on tour for years. Scott spent time at NBC, spent time at the Golf Channel, spent time at um, at the tour, actually. So we really went down a, a testing road, like an iterative road, where they had an idea where they were like, hey, we can play 18 holes. It can be teams. We can play these formats and those, and we can do it in this amount of time and all great ideas, but until you try it, you don't know. So we just started, like we really, we got a group of, uh, of testing players together. We would basically like retrofit a venue to work for us, especially in the early days. 
they ended up building a test venue, which there was a bunch of photographs in that Wired article. Saw those. Universal. Yeah, it was really cool. But the first one we did was like at one of these uh, like, you know, sim golf places, right? <laughs> and we would hit into a sim and then we would walk outside where they had like a putting green where you're supposed to like grab a cocktail and go putt. And even after the first one, we figured out like, hey, this did is you guys like two- did you guys rent out the whole place or yeah. were yeah. yeah. You, you said we're taking it down. Yeah, we rented. <laughs> I wonder what the manager of the store was thinking. We got a little bit of an inside track. It was Fairway Social and Alpharetta, nicest people. We went kind of in the morning. Again, the target audience there is <laughs> afternoon and evening. Um, and it was like, I mean, very entrepreneurial is the right word. But we realized pretty quickly, like, I think an early idea, and I mean, there's been so many versions, was, hey, there's three players on a team and uh, two of them play the the kind of two-on-two match and the third guy maybe plays singles like the star player. And then we realized like the third guy's just sitting there, right? For 45 minutes. And and then we Getting just kind of kept. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so we realized like, A, what the, the two big themes that we ended up like anchoring on um, that, you know, Scott latched onto immediately was like one, the cadence and the pace has to be quick. Like it needs to have a fast paced cadence. And the second one was it needs to be like really team golf. It needs to be collaborative. Like you can't just be three guys that are playing independently, like college golf, the other team golf that's out in the news now, like it's not really team golf. You just go play and then you add up your score. Right. Um, This is really collaborative where we landed. So when you play alt shot, you're not only playing with a partner, but you, your, your teammates, but the shot clock and the cadence makes you work together. Like if you want to read the putt from the other side of the hole, you don't have time. You have to have your teammate be like, hey, it looks left edge from over here. Or you're going to be calling out like, hey, it's 160. Like, I mean, you think it's just like a hard nine iron? And you're going to hear a lot of that, which is going to be cool. Um, and that's driven, again, by like us focusing on it being collaborative and then us focusing on it being fast paced. Yeah, the I I think obviously we do events across the country and one of the the tenants of these events is alternate shot. We, we do them in every single event. Yeah. And one thing I, I noticed with this watching a lot of alternate shot, having played a lot of alternate shot is that it is actually team golf. Yep. Like best ball is not team golf. You just like go out and, and you just, you know, like the best best ball strategy is like, Hey, I'm going to do me, you do you. And let's just play like we normally play because we're good players and we'll get this done. Right. Alternate shot, you actually have to like think and you are in it together. And I do I do really like that. I'm I'm curious, did you guys start with like a a time, like a broadcast window and back out of that? Is that yes. how you started to think about it? And and I imagine then you have built in like you need built in breaks for commercials. How how did what does that look like? Like taking it backing out and what were some things that you tried uh before landing on the format? And real quick, I'll just explain the format. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's nine holes of three man alternate shot. So you have yep. teams of three and it'll be player A hits, player B hits, player C hits. And then are they, is it player A, B, C for the T's? Is that the way, is it reset correct. on the T? So tee? player A T's off on hole yeah. one, four and seven. Yeah. Yep. And then the, the last six holes is a, uh, every player plays a two, two holes of a six hole match. So it's two two effective matches. Yeah. 
the A's from each team would play each other in a, in two holes. The B's play each other in two holes and the C's. So there's six holes of singles and each player plays two of them. So how did you guys come to this format from, you know, and, and what were some challenges and, and things that you thought might work that didn't work? I, I'll get there, but I'll say this too. If you're listening and you're just like, well, that's, I have literally no idea what they just said. I have a seven-year-old daughter, and when we open a kid's board game and I read the directions, I'm like, this is the most complicated thing I've ever read. And then you start playing, and after like five minutes, you're like, okay, I get it, right? So I think there's been some pushback out there about like, I don't understand this format, like it's so convoluted. And I think once people see like one match or 10 minutes of a match, they're going to understand it. And But how we got there, we did back out of a TV window. So I mean... You know, the, the CEO of, of TGL, uh, Mike McCarley, who ran the Golf Channel, we started with a, building a, t- a two-hour TV show. So that was the time frame. I think the first idea was 18 holes, because why wouldn't you just pick 18 holes as the first mm-hmm. kind of place to start? Um, and then if you factor in TV times, and then one thing that Mike always talks about when he does interviews is like, he thinks that seeing every single shot is going to be a big um, a big draw of this, like all the action is right in front of you where, which is what happens in every sport except for golf. So that is pretty interesting. If you're watching TGL, you will see every shot hitting the competition in a two hour window, which even if you're watching like Sunday of a major, you don't see every shot of even like the top three guys on the leaderboard. I mean, we've all that one masters Dustin, we didn't see him hit one shot till he had a 10 footer to win, to tie on 18, which was like, where did he come from? Right. Yeah. So that is, that is unique to TGL. Um, but, but that's how we, we started in the, the three man alt shot is really cool. The second test we did was at interlock in Orlando. Somehow we managed to like simulate one outside. And, um, I think it was in the kind of retro where we would get together after the test that somebody was like, what if we just did a three-man alt shot as opposed to having someone sit out? It seems obvious in retrospect, but until you test, that's how we came to that. And that's I, I love the three-man alt shot. I think like the one thing when I looked at it, um, probably pushback, and I'm curious on, on your guys' side, I, I'm sure it was thought of is like, is you know, one of the appeals to me is like we rarely ever see guys like Rory and JT square off. We're lucky if we get superstar versus superstar once in calendar year. And to me, on the single side of it, you know, you had this great opportunity where you have, you know, you what well, well, what would happen if Tiger and Rory squared off? We we got that a couple times in their entire careers, is you know, and you know, we get kind of these two whole singles matches within one singles match. Was there any thought to letting player A's go against each other or having those matches going on simultaneously? And what was the drawback to that, if there was? The one thing that you wouldn't anticipate till you see it is that the player A's will actually be kind of head-to-head in the in the triples, in the nine holes of, of three-man all shot. Because let's say Tiger and Rory are the A's. They're going to tee off together on one, on four, and on seven right? And one of those will be a part of three. So like they'll be head to head. So it the, the match actually unfolds where there's a cadence of a bit more head to head than just the singles. And it's the same thing. Like, let's say you're the B player on a part of three. 
like it's going to be Tiger and Rory are going to be putting against each other. And if both their teammates hit it to 10 feet, now they're both on the green together. They're both head to head on their putts. So you kind of end up spending most of the match with your counterpart on the other team, whether you're the ABC player. And I don't mean like best, worst, second. I just mean like in the order that you're hitting, right? I, you know, one thing that's super exciting to me is like the golf course stuff where you can just like kind of make believe design holes. And like, we, I think there's like, you know, especially for this podcast, some interest in like testing, like, you know, if, if you get, uh, the right people involved with design, like there could be some really crazy tests of golf architecture, things that you've always wanted to see. How would this play out? How would this type of hole play out? And it's like a low stakes you know, one one round through uh, of testing architecture ideas. I think this uh, honestly could really push golf architecture in in different directions and be a laboratory to see, you know, at the highest level what golf design for modern tour pros could be if, you know, if you think about it differently. Um, one of the things I think about is like, there's also potential for a lot of strategy within teams. Like maybe you don't want to have Rory be player A on one course because that leads to, you know, I, I mean, he's great at everything, but like he, he, you know, two of the three holes he might play are par threes versus, you know, if he goes to player B slot, he's playing two par fives and hitting the tee shot for a guy like, uh, you know, uh, I guess on his team. Who would be a good uh, Hatton? Yeah, Hatton hitting approach shot, right? Yeah. You know, um, like that. That type of strategy is also very interesting from the golf course side and the way a three-man alt shot works. You know, I think it almost increases the the way you want to think about building a team and building a roster for a specific course. Yeah, and so the the courses that they'll be playing. Um, will be like a collection of holes. And then each match will have, hey, we're going to pull these 15 holes and we're going to play these holes. So the first hole could be like a Hawaii-type setting. The second one could be like a Colorado setting. So it's going to really have a lot of variety. But the players will know uh, and before the match like what the course, what the holes being played that match are, and they can lay out their strategy according to that. So 100%. And then the other thing that will come in on the strategy is Again, shot clock, cadence, they'll have some timeouts. If you go over the shot clock, it's a one-stroke penalty. So you have a timeout to save yourself, but it's very different than like the suggested you're on the clock on tour type stuff, right? And then there's also going to be a hammer, which is like a press. So you hit it up there three feet, throw the hammer, and the whole, you know, the other team can either fold or accept the hammer. So there's going to be what what does the hammer do? Is it like uh, in terms of like this match? How does that the so hammer it, work? The hole is worth one point, and if you hammer, it's now worth two. But you have the choice to fold and give up the one point, or you have the choice to accept and play for two points. And the other unlimited part is, hammers. There's only one, so only one team has it at okay. a time. So you have to. That's the thing that we really learned in the testing too. It's like the the game becomes pretty um, strategic and like intense because you have to really think about like if you're slightly ahead and you get a slight advantage, you may want to keep the hammer as opposed to just using it and then now the other team has it. So now they're one hole away, one shot away from taking the lead on a two-point hole. And then we also had like just like in real you know gambling, Saturday gambling, 
you can throw the hammer back and a point, a hole can be worth three points. So you end up with these like awkward five footers for three points. Sometimes we've all been there, right? Like you hammer. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh my gosh, now I just tripled the bet and I got to make a four footer. So it's uh it's pretty interesting. I think one of the, the beauties of golf and golfers is that, you know, as and and I'm just kind of thinking about this as we talk about this. Um, but like one of the things you don't have to really worry about with top tier professional golfers is like is competition level because like most of these guys I think probably fall in the bucket of hate losing more than they love winning. Um, it's probably like a common um mindset thing that of of top flight professional golfers. Would you agree with that? I agree. And I think that's a hundred percent right. And the way that um the kind of the ethos of the whole league and TGL and the competition, like, you know, that aforementioned slide deck 15 months ago that was like, what is this? They were very clear that it was going to have competitive integrity and it was going to be competitive. And yeah, it's going to push the limit with, you know, interesting designed holes and there's a hammer and there's timeouts and it's, you know, probably not wearing pants and polo shirts. And, you know, if your shirt's untucked, it's probably okay. But um, at the end of the day, it is a real, a real competition and there will be a winner at the end of each match. And yeah, I mean, when we were testing this thing, uh, the first hole was pretty friendly and by the end it was like pretty intense. That's uh yeah, I feel like that's the way like pickup basketball works, right? right. It's it's very friendly at the beginning, but then when it's uh you know, ten ten and you're playing to eleven or nine nine ten and you're playing to eleven, all of a sudden it uh the defense ramps up a little bit and you gotta like you know, because you got a bunch of people that are playing pickup basketball because they're competitive, just like golf, right? Um so anyways, uh I would love uh you know what do you think's the one thing if you had to distill it down to about the format that's really going to work? I think timing. I think that you're going to be able to see 15 whole match in two hours is pretty compelling. How many commercial breaks are we talking? Are we <laughs> are we going to get hammered with like uh, Sunday telecast commercials? It's not the Sunday telecasts that are a problem. It's like the Thursday, Friday, early Saturday that <laughs> Sunday afternoon that like it's the early rounds that are on that have all the tele uh, commercials. That's that's beyond my pay grade. You have to ask the the CEO's a TV guy. You can ask. Okay, him. okay. I just you know I think that's going to be probably a sticking point with fans. But maybe uh, maybe there's a world you know it's going it's launching on ESPN and ESPN Plus, which the ESPN side is amazing because you have such a wide reach, and then the ESPN Plus side maybe there's a uh, fee based uh, no commercial option for you, Andy. Well, well, I'll, I'll ask. Okay, I've said I've said this about professional golf is I would pay an ungodly like I you know obviously I'm in a, a, a position where it's part of my job, but I would pay an ungodly amount of money to just bypass the playing throughs the the commercial loads uh it's uh but i don't know if there's a critical scale there that would actually make the business work uh especially I, with the rights fees i mean it's easy to joke but um one thing that's awesome about tgl is like it's truly innovative right like it's not just clipping up the same thing in a different way it's also happening against a backdrop of like major major media disruption so it's it's really it's you know it's a really ambitious and innovative um, path forward for sports, and I think 
it's been cool for me and CapTech to be a part of, but also I think it's the beginning of, of a bunch of things that are going to um, that are going to be fast moving in the next five to ten years in sports. Um, what would you say is your biggest hesitation, worry about about it? This is like the interview question. What's what's your biggest weakness? Yeah, I think the I think the players have to be into it, right? They they really have to get into. Um, they have to be locked in. They have to be trying to win. And I think we've, you know, I think Scott and all the, you know, all the way up to Mike McCarley, like keeping that front and center, I think is going to be, is going to make that happen. But it needs to be closer to a, um, you know, high level competition than a um, hit and giggle. Right. And I think uh, I'm not, I'm not concerned about it. I think like you said, players are competitive and they'll be there to win, but that's, that's going to be a big key. Yeah. That, uh, I, I think that, and I think the guys, I know like mic'd up trash talk is like a big thing. They're kind of hammering on from a PR side, but like, I think if we've learned anything from the many, many iterations of the match all the way back to like the battle of Bighorn, Right. We cannot like force it. It has to yeah. be natural in the flow and in the best silence is always a good option with golf. Yeah. Like it's always a good option. Yeah. And I think like, you know, that to me is like it cannot become like a, a contrived trash talk. Yeah. And I've seen some of that, but I don't think there's going to be time for it, to be honest, because there's been the mic'd up is going to be cool because you're going to hear the players talking shots out. I really do think that because that's what we've been doing in the testing. I don't think it's going to be filling dead time because like in the match, they have to get from one shot to the other, right? This is all in a contained space. So it's fast paced. So I think um, the shot clock will make the players collaborate, play team golf. And it's, I don't think it's going to leave a bunch of time for that idle Charles Barkley, you know, kind of trash talk type, type interaction. All right, now for another quick break from our sponsor, the USGA. Um, this is all about becoming a member. I uh, I have been a member. I I saw. I was looking at my bag tag, which I keep uh, on my backpack. I've been a member since 1999. Sure, you know there were probably some college years where my mom paid my membership. Uh, mom and dad kept the membership going. I might not have been, you know, really really invested in in the USGA then, but now I am. Um, and Really, I think the thing with everything going on in golf, with the framework agreement or lack thereof framework agreement, with the you know the TGL, which is going to you know reward top end play. One of the things that I find quite refreshing is there are organizations such as the USGA who are out there taking money and investing it back into the game. Whether it's like turf grass research, whether it is programs to introduce more people to the game of golf. Um, this membership leaves a positive impact on the game that I love the game that's given me so much. And that's why I will always be a member. So this holiday season, give the gift of a USGA membership. Uh, members will get a, a lot of benefits. You get the members only hat, a bag tag, a subscription to the USGA's publication called the golf journal. Uh, it's really delightful. I, I enjoy reading it. Um, and it most importantly, ensures a strong future for the game of golf. 
So give a gift of the USGA membership by visiting usga.org slash fried egg. That's usga.org slash fried egg. Big thanks to the USGA and uh, and thanks to them for all that they do for the game um, with the different programs that a lot of people don't know about. So thank you to them. Uh, and hopefully people can give the gift of their membership this uh, this winter. Now back to Roberto Castro. If you could take one thing from what you've kind of learned creating this format from TGL and take it to the PGA Tour, which would, what would it be? That's a phenomenal question. I think just I would take it to all sports is being open-minded about what the rules can be. Like we created these games. They didn't come from some mountain on high, right? And I think being open-minded to change and to being progressive would be the one thing I would take, right? Um, To the tour, to other sports, you know, like the three-point line didn't exist until they just drew a line on it and (laughs) made the points higher. And we get so stuck in the mud, golf especially, um, about what's, you know, just sacred. And I think TGL is going to open people's eyes to the fact that you can, you can write your own rules. You can make it fun. You can make it engaging. Um, so that, that's what I would take. I, you know, I, I look at like the, um, the NBA as like an example of this, right. Is like right now we're in the middle of their, um, in season tournament. And there's like, I don't know if it's been successful, but what I appreciate about it is that they are attempting. Sure. They have this time period when like people don't pay attention to their sport. And I think golf, like if you think about golf, like, you know, when people don't really pay attention to, to PGA tour golf, like Thursday and Friday and Saturday to a certain extent. So it's like, Similar situation, like the PGA Tour or the NBA, people don't pay attention to games in November. So let's try something different. Let's try to create some stakes out of these like Tuesday and Thursday games and their tournament games. And we're going to have a, a tournament with incentives. Like there's nothing wrong. Like I, I think like the jury's out on whether it's going to work. I don't think like I personally as an NBA fan haven't been like, I need to watch this because it's a tournament game. It's year one of that. But like at the same time, like I applaud the effort of actually trying of actually being like, you know what? We're okay. If this doesn't work, right. We're not okay with not trying something to enhance our product. And I feel like, like what you just said is so spot on with, with the tour is like, well, we can't, this is the way the sport is. We can't do that. And it's like, what? We can't? Yeah. And it, but it, look, it speaks to your, I mean, you have an entrepreneurial spirit, right? You started the fried egg and took a risk. And, you know, a lot of the the clients we work with are trying to tackle hard problems and do kind of find a new business line, find a new customer. And that's, that's the fun stuff. But you you have to do it. I mean, and and it may not work, but like I use the example all the time when people are like, this is dumb. This is dumb. Imagine this. We just walked to lunch. What if 15 years ago, somebody had been like, hey, do you think you need um, a phone that you can pull up a thing and you can order your lunch that when you get there, it's ready? You're like, that is so dumb. Why do I need that? Right? Like, I don't, what do you mean a phone? Like I have a phone in my house or I have a cell phone. 
So we just walked to Chick-fil-A and the line was super long. But when we got there, our food was ready because we had ordered on the app walking there. Saved me 20 minutes of standing in line. That That's progress. Like that's, that is an inevitable march of technology and progress. And um, it's coming for every business. It's coming for every sport. Sorry to tell you. So it's either get on board and try something or you're going to get left behind. You know, that reminded me, I, I worked at a company uh, years ago that was backed by Andreessen and Horowitz, or Andreessen Horowitz, one of the top venture funds in the world. And yep. uh, one of their partners, Jeff Jordan, came to our office and did this talk just about how they operate. And one of the things that I will never forget that stuck with me um, is he talked about how they go about investing in companies how they choose investments, right? This is a company that gets to look at every company, every idea that's a big idea. Um, and their their policy is that if, if every partner agrees that it's a brilliant idea and that it's, it's a home run, they don't invest in it. At least one partner has to think that it's like ludicrously stupid, like one of the worst ideas ever and their their i their their point was that like someone has to think that it's dumb for it to work right cuz then if if everybody agrees it's a great idea somebody's already tried it and it hasn't right. worked right so the the whole premise and i think like in a way i i like have been critical on the shotgun start of tgl and different aspects of it but the idea of like that there are things that you as a a golf fan think are stupid is probably a good sign for the league in a weird convoluted way because that means it's doing something different in a weird convoluted way we started out i think we spent 10 minutes on the virtues of clubs that are 38 and 45 years old <laughs> vintage wooden clubs and are closing with a uh, you know a story about the future of technology and uh, and venture investing so i love love the arc we took here yeah well see this is the thing i i, I try to do topics i don't do lots of questions i like to just let the conversation go um all right uh let's talk a little bit i'm curious about your um your your stance you're you're retired it's it's great when you have retired players on because there's you know a little bit less um worrying about about yourself and your standing um, on the PGA tour and more probably a little bit perspective on, on what's going on. We're in a, I feel like a very big inflection point. Maybe it's already happened. What's going to happen. I'm kind of reading some tea leaves of Rory leaving uh, yesterday. The, the, you know, the leadership role on the policy board as a, Former player, how do you feel about the situation that golf has entered here, where it's kind of an open bidding season on this new company? It's pretty wild. I mean, taking bids, you know, for investment, outside investment uh, for the PGA Tour is not something back to our last conversation. Like, if you don't think progress and evolution and change is coming for you and your business, who could have said this would have ever happened to the tour? But I don't know. I, if I was a player, I would. I, if I was currently playing, I would. My first thought would be that I somehow landed in the most lucrative time in in professional golf history. And you know, you brought competition in. The purses of, I mean, almost doubled since I stopped playing um, two three years ago. And 
Bad that's time good. to retire. That yeah, great time. That's <laughs> <laughs> that is uh that's great for players. And then I would probably just be looking at a lot of change coming. I mean, if I think and the biggest one is the tour is a nonprofit and it's easy to crack, you know, little jokes about being a very well funded and nonprofit. But they're and the books have to balance at the end of the year, right? Once you start taking uh, outside investment, there's just a profit motive there, right? There's a there's a motive for return, and it doesn't matter who has control; it still changes the the um, just the mission statement of the organization, and that's going to in turn change the operation of that organization. So, uh, if I was a player, I would I would not. I know this is not happen. I, I know they're sitting there at lunch because I've talked to players and um, it's all they talk about, but I would probably be trying to ignore it because it's all changing so fast. Like, you know, signature events this year, it's going to look different next year. Team golf, it might be a I mean, we just don't know what the professional golf will look like in the next one to five years. So it's probably not worth like digging too deep on the 24 hour news cycle. It feels like it would be really hard as a player to as any anybody can relate to this that's had a bit of uncertainty in their job. But it's like, you know, at this point, and it seems like the direction it's going. You are going to be highly rewarded for being a top 30 player on the PGA Tour. So all of your mental energy yeah, should probably fo- be focused on on that, and because to me, if they are looking at you know if they're bringing on outside investment, like you said, they're going to lose a a certain um, degree of control. They they might still control it, um, but you know you're bringing somebody else. You know it's just like getting married, like you. <laughs> You know, you can say, oh, I've got this autonomous relationship, but you are absolutely thinking about your partner and what they are, you know, what they want in a situation, you know, that it doesn't you won't be married long if you if you don't do that. And with this, you know, if you're bringing on a partner, their goals are going to be different than what a membership organization goals are going to be. And it's it is a uh, I you know, it's. It's fascinating that they got to here. I think it will be very lucrative for players, but there is going to be a, a subset of players that it's going to be very bad for at some point. And there's going, I think it's going to create a, a larger class system, in my opinion. Potential for that. Yeah. It's, uh, what, would you, uh, what would you hope the, the structure would be if, you were, if, you were, if you're the golf czar? Oh, if you made me golf czar, I would lean into some different innovative kind of new formats, you know, I mean, TGL is a part of that team golf is a part of that. I think, um, I think there are probably like eight to 12 legacy events that I would, you know, die on the sword. They should be 72, two holes of stroke play with 144 players starting on Thursday. And, um, well, I mean, masters has a smaller field and that's fine, but, um, and, but then beyond that, I would think creatively. So that, um, that that's what I would do, but you know your four majors, your players, and then a handful of others. I think um, should exist in the traditional format, and then I think, hey, whatever brings in the most fans and eyeballs, and is still you know competitive has competitive equity. Like we're not just playing darts here. Like it's not, but 
creative formats. That it's a, I think you hit the nail on the head because if you think about golf, right? To me, like where mainstream interest is, is in the major championships. And then like, honestly, some of these like matches made for TV things. I'm not talking about the recent ones with like just NFL players, but like when they, you know, those early matches from my perspective with my friends that are very casual golf fans, that's the stuff that had them buzzing. It wasn't, you know, the third round of the travelers, no offense to the travelers, right. Who will do everything they can to remain one of the relevant events. But like, to me, it has to evolve. It can't be 42 weeks of the same thing. And that's yeah. like the biggest thing. Like, elevate the ones that you really want, make them very serious competitions. And then you have to figure out how everything else relates. And maybe to me, like expanding the Corn Ferry Tour into more of a PGA tour, like a, a real, I think maybe stricter rele- relegation is the way that you do this and then have these tournaments that like golf fans like me and you are still going to be tuning into. Like I will watch corn Ferry tour finals. Like I, I think that's some of the, probably one of the top 20 events of golf on TV every year is that is the end of the corn Ferry finals, you know, like how do we blend it together so that there's, you know, these events that everybody knows really matter. So they attract the biggest audience. And then, you know, like, I don't think like, a, uh, you know, RSM this week's going to rate out of the park more so than if you had it being a mixed PGA Tour B just for namesake and, and Corn Ferry Tour event, right? Yeah, but the business side and the incentives, aligning the incentives um, and the structure is going to be needed. It needs to adjust to to facilitate that. So you just saw that and, and this is what I have said I've told this story before. I played in the Napa tournament, I don't know, whatever it was, four or five years ago. When was it was it like the fries? Oh, was it the fries I then? Know, it was, was, I think safe, it was Safeway. Safeway. Because they had the shopping cart. Teams. It was Safeway. <laughs> and it was like a week after the tour championship. Like there was hardly any gap, right? And I think the national media or you or everyone was probably like, the last thing I need this week is a 72 hole tournament and first week of September after a 40. I get out to Napa, tickets are sold out. They're doing concerts at night. I'm out there Thursday. I tee off at one o'clock. There's a big food and beverage pavilion behind the first screen. There's 500 people that are out there having drinks, watching golf. So as a standalone entity, which is how a lot of these PGA Tour events are, right? The Salesmanship Club runs the Dallas event, right? The, yeah. um, the, the Thunderbirds runs the Phoenix event. I don't know who runs the Napa event. The tour doesn't necessarily own that tournament. It was a big success. And that, um, you know, they were incentivized to raise a bunch of charity dollars, get a title sponsor, put on a four to five day event and bring people in. And they succeeded on all those. So that is kind of the pushback to like the last thing I need in my life is this Safeway championship this week. But where I was going with that is Honda couldn't find a, a replacement sponsor and the tour brought that under championship management in the last few weeks. So they essentially, and I don't know, I don't want to overspeak. I don't know the exact details. I don't know if like they own the Honda classic or the Palm beach classic or whatever, but it's like the South Florida tour event, or if they're just managing it, 
But now it's like it's under the umbrella. So if they want to look at their inventory and be like, okay, because right now the tour has like tour championship, President's Cup, the players. But if they wanted to turn the Phoenix Open into a six day match play event, they couldn't like the Phoenix Open's the Phoenix Open. Yeah, it's they under have the to sign off. Right. So you're going to start to see some changes. And I don't know how that, I have no idea how that all shakes out with the new investment. And, but that is going to go hand in hand with, um, let me look at TGL, right? It's an independent partnership, but they're partnered with the tour, but it's their own company. They raised money. They're setting up the the format and that gives them that freedom. So the business structure has to align with the kind of competitive and media and market structure also. See, it's like it's interesting. You you talk about the Honda, the South Florida tournament, which has gotten just absolutely demolished uh, le- recently with the you know elevated events, the you know whatever a- every iteration of them. They've been sandwiched in a bad spot, and it's like yet every tour, like a a huge percentage of the tour players live there, and they just aren't showing up for their hometown event. Like I would then eventually, I would think about that tournament and be like, hey, what if we did? nine holes nine hole rounds yeah and it's like oh this is like i'm home but i'm gonna play nine holes regardless why wouldn't i go play nine holes have a chance to win a couple million dollars right yeah like what if they did nine hole rounds like i and then you think about the tv product of that and it's like oh this is this would be kind of fun like all of a sudden like the stakes of a nine hole round are like heightened Right. Like every hole matters so much. Anybody that like plays in the member guest nine hole match, you're like, holy shit, I just lost a hole. Like I like this. That's meaningful. I don't have that much time to work it back. Just like, you know, a guy makes a double bogey and on the third hole of a nine hole round, it's like, oh, I don't have a lot of time to make birdies to make up that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is going to sound super spoiled. I was never in this position, but I would play in the Honda and I would um, I would think to myself, like, if I lived within 20 minutes of here, why would I not play? Well, here's the reality. We're like, why wouldn't you just opt out of the pro-am if you could or play the pro-am and like skip the practice rounds and whatnot? If you're a top player, going to play around on the PGA Tour, Thursday, Friday, takes five hours. It takes 90 minutes to warm up. You get there to eat. You have to do media. Like those, those guys have to do media, right? They're going to require you to come in on Tuesday. It's a 10-hour commitment for six days to play in a tour event. It doesn't matter if you're home. You might as well be in Charlotte or Atlanta. It doesn't matter at all. So as they're making their schedule, in fairness to them, it's, you know, they have to pick their spots and it's like, oh, you're home anyway. No, there's a difference between being home and, you know, resting, working out, being with my family, practicing and spending 10 hours a day at PGA National. Those are two very, it's not like you, if your buddy calls you and you're like, oh, you want to play tomorrow? Yeah, you could play at eight and you could be in a meeting at 1230, right? Like that's not how it works out there. So I think unless you've lived that, it's it's different than people think. Yeah. So reducing the commitment of, yeah. of time would all of a sudden probably entice them. But, yeah, totally. you know, that would it probably would cut against their TV pr- contract. And but like yeah. the the beauty of I think the why you should have excitement as a fan is that if you're under this new company with outside investment, there is going to be a heavy incentive and potentially demand for um, shakeup, increased ratings and different different aspects, growth overall. Like nobody's investing in the business. Nobody's going to give the the tour billions of dollars and not want a positive return on the money. And 
ideally they want a large return. So they want to put two billion in to get, you know, five billion out. And the only way I think it's very clear, the only way that happens is with evolution in the sport. Yep. So you'd have to look. It's you you could look back 10 or 20 years from now, you know, what, 40, 90 plus percent of the events are within a four hour plane ride. It's a big world out there. And if I was looking for, you know, a double digit return, I probably would be looking beyond just the borders of the US. I mean, I've always I've said this a million times, like the level of spoiledness on the tour. I mean, we I would people are like, oh, you must be triple platinum medallion. It's like, no, I would fly to L.A. Then I would drive to Palm Springs. Then I would drive to Phoenix. Some of the top guys are like hopping 20 minute net jets or whatever. It's a three hour. When you do the Florida swing, you can get from Orlando to to Tampa, to Ponte Vedra, to Palm Beach. They're all 15 minute flights or four hour drives like that's unbelievable. You know how good that is? It's amazing. And yeah. And I don't I think was, I don't think they'll have four events in Florida if that if they're if you're looking for the highest dollar uh, return. Maybe you do. I don't know. I, mean, I don't you know, don't know what the answers will be. But um, those folks that are interested in investing are really good at turning in a, do- a dollar into five. So I bet they have some ideas. All right. Last question. We'll get you out of here. If you, if you could have a tour event, one place that there currently isn't a tour event, where would it be? Pasa Tiempo. Fresh off a renovation. They should play Pasta Tiempo with vintage clubs. It's too short to play with the no those fans. Guys. Yeah. Have to be very limited fans. Yeah, that's true. Did you ever play the college tournament there? I did one time. Yep. That was fun. It's amazing to look at like scoring's improved, but it hasn't gone. And I think they I think recently they've gone a little over the top with setup for it. You know, it seems Oh really. Yeah. I, I mean watching it. It's so awesome it's on TV, but yeah, the vintage clubs. Having played vintage clubs out there, it's a really freaking hard golf course with vintage clubs. I believe clubs. that. That is probably the perfect. I mean, that's one of my favorite courses, but that's probably the perfect golf course to play. Like for me, my distance, my skill with a vintage set. It's probably the perfect setup. All right. We'll we'll leave it that. See, we brought it all the way back. All you the know? way back. It didn't make sense. But hey, thank you for uh your time. Thank you uh for uh you know, hanging in with all these questions and people can yeah. find you. You're on Twitter. You, you've you got the course record show. You're still doing the course record show. Still doing a podcast with a buddy on the business side of golf. We're doing a little bit of actually in, in your space a little bit. We're talking about why are golf courses closing kind of just general golf course, real estate business right now. Poor, so, yeah, poor management. If, you, if your golf course isn't thriving right now, probably. That's what we that's what we talk about. Apparently, though, it's um, land value redevelopment. Uh, that makes sense, too. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of a uh, lot of offers for some of the land the golf courses are on. So, all right. So everybody, listen to that. I honestly, I give it a plug. I I will pop in and listen uh, to a lot of episodes. It's it's a, a different uh, take on a very crowded golf podcast space. It's it, it it's fun. I I especially if uh, I imagine most listeners are business people. It's a interesting way to look at a lot of things going on in golf. It's once a month. Your pods are like once a day. So if you, you can find 45 minutes a month for the course record show, folks, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Roberto. Thanks, Andy. All right. 
Thank you guys for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. And thanks to Roberto Castro for joining. This episode was edited and produced by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. Um, as a quick reminder, it is the holiday season. I know you're going to be hit over the head with um, holiday ge- deals. If you're a Club TFE member, your Black Friday sale has started. You also get 25% off all of your purchases in the Fried Egg Pro Shop using your promo code. Also, um, on the other side of things, if you're not a Club TFE member, uh, the sale will start next week. Um, it will be 20% off. We've got a wide array of prints. We've got a ton of different merchandise, and we really appreciate your support. So keep your eyes out for the Black Friday. We've got lots of new gear in the shop, and uh, I know you've got a lot of options in holiday season. We appreciate uh, your support, and uh, and really, we appreciate your support just from listening to this podcast. And if you've made it to this point, I really appreciate your support. So thanks. We'll be back uh, next week. I think, I believe, assuming nothing goes uh, wrong with recording, which sometimes happens, uh, mostly it's always on my end, but we will have a couple, probably two, yoke with dokes to get you through your holiday drives and, uh, you know, those holiday, uh, you, you got downtime during the holidays. I'm personally looking forward to it. So, uh, we'll, we'll get you through your Thanksgiving with a couple of yoke with dokes. So we'll be back next week. And thanks so much for listening. <music>